I'm sure I wasn't the only one caught out by some of the uh, lyrics in some of those hymns, but uh, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to uh, back to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, the same passage we were uh, looking at this morning. Uh, and keep your Bibles open. Let's uh, just bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, you, the great cornerstone, chosen and precious, thank you for who you have made us. And we ask this now that you would point us to you, point us to yourself, that we may glory in who you are and what you have done. Amen. Hopefully there should be a PowerPoint. Was there a PowerPoint? Didn't come to... Okay, no worries. We'll do without a PowerPoint. It should be fairly straightforward to follow. I don't mean to offend anybody uh, by this. Um, I'll say it anyway. Uh, how many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? It rather depends. Uh, if you're Pentecostals, uh, just one. Hands are already in the air. Um, Anglicans? None. They, they do candles. Uh, Baptists, uh, well, at least 15. One to change the light bulb, the others to form two or three committees to approve the change, and another one to provide a slow-cooked casserole. You know, it's easy to laugh at the church. I don't mean any offense by any of those, uh, especially if you're from a Pentecostal or Anglican background. Um, if you're a Baptist by background, it doesn't really matter, but... Um, <laughs> It's not a bad thing, you know, to take a, a slightly tongue-in-cheek look at ourselves uh, and to at least see some humor in the way that we do things. And, you know, even in jokes like that, we do see a semblance of reality, don't we? But is it really what the church can be boiled down to? Denominational characteristics and differences... Think about ourselves, an independent Baptist church, and those who poke fun, those behind those uh, witty jokes, well, they, they would draw attention to the fact that Baptists are often known by their casseroles and committees. So is that what we are? Are we fundamentally nothing more than a collection of committees, a, a team of elders, a, a group of deacons, a care team, other ministry teams? Is that our, our essence, our nature as a church? Are we fundamentally, when you boil us down, are we fundamentally just a collection of of committees. Well, the Apostle Peter, writing to these Christian believers in the first century, well, he describes the, the nature of the Christian church. This morning, um, we looked, didn't we, at verse 9, our kind of key text for, uh, for this year. We looked at the identity, the character of the church of Jesus Christ. This evening, we're kind of, we're going to go a little bit beneath the surface, under the bonnet. Uh, I, I've got no idea what is under a bonnet of a car, but... Um, you know what I mean, but beneath the surface, the, the kind of fundamental essence the, of what the church is, and, and it's verses 4 and 5 in this passage that are, are really the key. It, essentially, everything else in the rest of the passage unpacks what Peter says in those two verses. The rest of the, the passage explains what Peter says at the beginning, and, and we'll, we'll see that the church is far, far more than a, an object of humor, as it is for some people. Uh, the church is more than a set of denominational distinctives. The church is more than a collection of committees. And ultimately, the church is at the very center of God's plan, not just for this world, but for the entire cosmos 
and for eternity. The church at its very essence, the church in its very being, is God's new community that he is creating. And and three things, I think, that Peter tells us about the nature of the church. First of all, he tells us that God's new community is built on Christ. Now, when many non-Christians think of the church, they generally think of one of two things. Either they will think about the Church of England, or they will think of the Roman Catholic Church. We pesky nonconformists don't tend to feature much in their thinking. The Church of England, of course, is part of the establishment of our nation. It's under the leadership of archbishops and the queen as its supreme governor, bishops in the House of Lords. It's part of the fabric woven into national life in the UK. And to many outsiders, it's perhaps those things that give the church its foundation, its stability. Or or what about the the Catholic Church? It's under the authority of the Pope. The Pope is reckoned to stand in the uh, apostolic succession that can trace its history all the way back to the Apostle Peter. So for them, the the Pope, is well, is he foundational for, for them? What does Peter himself have to say? And, and he doesn't mention monarchs and supreme governors and archbishops and state churches or anything like that. He, he doesn't even mention apostles and pastors and elders. The reason is none of those, none of those are the foundation upon which the church is built. God's new community is built on Jesus Christ. And that's a tremendously good thing, isn't it? There was a little boy who, who lived near the beach every day after school. He went and he, he built sandcastles on the, on the beach until one week some older boys from the school came and they came along and chased him off and kicked his sandcastles over. They did it the next day as well. And the next day, by Friday, of course, this little boy was getting a bit fed up, so he did something a little bit different. Before building his sandcastle, he went and he found the biggest rock he could possibly find. Uh, and he sat that down on the sand, and he, he set about building his sandcastle around and on top of it. And by the time he was finished, the rock was hidden. And along come the bigger boys, chase him off, and get a surprise when their feet connected with the rock. You know, the church is built rather like that. Though it may look frail on the outside, perhaps. Though we may, we may be attacked by the evil one who, who tries his very hardest to kick us over time and time again, day after day. Though we may be feeling danger of being kicked down at a moment's notice. The church is built on the rock, Jesus Christ. And look at what Peter says about Jesus, this, this rock upon whom uh, the church is built. He says he's the living stone, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone. Stone, I I don't know about you, but my experience of stones is that they are usually fairly inanimate objects. If I had to choose my top 10 adjectives to describe a stone, or my top 100 adjectives to describe a stone, living probably wouldn't feature on the list. But Peter is not trying any kind of trickery or anything. He's doing a couple of things. He's, as we thought this morning, he's drawing from the Old Testament. He's drawing from the Old Testament scriptures to show that Jesus is building a new community. In particular, he wants us to grasp, he's building a new community that that will not only replace the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, but it will replace the temple that was at the center of Israel's life. The temple was the place where God was worshipped and 
where God symbolically dwelt amongst his people. And, and Peter understands what Jesus was talking about when he was here on earth, that, that Jesus said he was going to fulfill all that the temple represented. He was going to do away with the need for a temple. Why? Well, because in this new community that God is creating, uh, he's creating it in and through his son. And in this new community, he will do all that the temple stood for. And he will do it in a, in a wonderful, more glorious way than the, than the old temple ever did. It will be in this new community that worship will take place. It will be in this new community that God lives on the earth. So he kind of takes the temple, the, the, all the images from the Old Testament, and he's saying that this new community that God is creating, the church, it's going to fulfill, it's going to replace what the temple stood for. And Jesus is key. Jesus is the living stone. That's why he uses this image of a stone to describe Jesus. That's the first thing Peter's doing. Second thing he's doing in this description as, as living stone is he's enforcing the centrality of the resurrection. Jesus is not just the stone, he's the living stone. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is, is the driving force of Peter's whole letter. Uh, back in chapter 1, if you flip back to how he started the letter, what did he say? He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, the resurrection has been Peter's driving force from the day of resurrection itself. That day changed his life. Uh, and the resurrection was the driving force behind his sermon on the day of Pentecost. where, as, uh, as he, Peter, the first Christian preacher, the spokesman for the disciples, he got up to address the crowds. And the, the resurrection was front and center. Uh, and every other time Peter preaches in the book of Acts, the resurrection is there as well. And it's there as he writes this uh, letter. Peter understood that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead changes everything. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. And Peter wants us, members of this new community, Peter wants us to remember and to rejoice in the fact that we are built on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus who is the living stone. He's not like the stones in our front garden. They have no life of their own. They stay where they are until the children walk on them and kick them over the driveway. But Jesus is not like those stones. He's the stone, the solid foundation upon whom the church is built. But he's not a dead stone. He's the living stone. The church is built on Jesus, the living stone. But Jesus is not just the living stone. He's also the foundation stone, Peter says. Verses 6 and 7, for it says in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. To you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So imagine two building projects going on side by side. And the two builders go down to the, the quarry on the Monday morning to gather stones to build their, house, their houses. And one gets there nice and early, and he seeks out the stones he wants. And in doing so, of course, he, he turfs others uh, to the side. He turfs away all those stones that seem useless for his project. 
And he comes to one particular rock, and, and in some ways it would make the perfect foundation stone. It's, it's big, it's solid, it's, it's got a good right angle, but for whatever reason, it, maybe it's the wrong color or it's rough instead of smooth, well, it just doesn't look like much, and it, he rejects it. And then along comes the other builder, and, and that stone is perfect for it. And he chooses it as his cornerstone. That's what Peter's describing, how, how Jesus, chosen by God was rejected by the, the Jewish leaders of the day, but not only by them, by the world at large. Two building projects. One is being built by human hands. The other is being built by God. Humanity, as a, as a race, is building a society. It's always been that way from the very earliest of, of times. Humanity is building its way of life. Uh, we're very conscious, aren't we, in, in this country, uh, uh, how humanity is building a particular kind of society, the kind of society that it believes it wants. Uh, and in that building project, any stone that kind of represents the Christian way of life, any, any stone that represents biblical values, well, those, those stones are being cast aside. They're not, they're not wanted. And of course, as humanity builds this society that it thinks it wants, it notices this particular stone, Jesus. This stone doesn't fit their project. They want a life, a society without God. And so they reject this stone and all he represents, all he demands and desires. But then take a look at things from God's viewpoint. He's the master builder. He's the one who's building a new society. He's building a new society, a new community in the midst of this world, a, a community that is different, that is there to serve him, a community that will last beyond the day of judgment. And he comes to the building side, and uh, well, he has a rather different view of this stone that has been turfed out by society, this stone that's been cast on the rubbish heap. Because to God, this stone is precious. This stone is his son. And he's central. He's God's anointed one. He's God's chosen one. Chosen and precious to, to God. The world, humanity ignores Jesus. But despite their view of this stone, it's God's view that matters. To God, Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone. The one rejected by those who were building the Jewish system. More widely, those who are building humanity's society. But in God's new community, Jesus is nothing short of central. The image of this cornerstone is, is that of the, the first, the foundation stone that is at the center point of the building, from which everything else radiates and finds its strength. Jesus is that cornerstone. We cannot live without him. The church is not about denominations and leaders and casseroles and committees. We can, we can live without some of those things, but we cannot live without Jesus. He's the cornerstone, and without him, everything else falls apart because God's new community is built on Christ. He's the living stone. He's the cornerstone. He's also, Peter tells us, he's also the decisive stone. Look at verse 8. He's a stone that causes people to stumble, a, a rock that makes them fall. 
Uh, You see, rejecting Jesus spells absolute disaster. Uh, The key thing Peter wants to reinforce to us is that it is our relationship with Jesus that determines whether or not we're members of this new community. Nothing else determines our membership, not not our baptism, not not even our formal church membership, however good those things are. Not not whether we attend church and give money in the offering or take communion. Those things do not determine our membership of this community. It's only our relationship with Jesus. And those who reject him, those who turf out the cornerstone because they don't like him and what he stands for, those who reject Christ face absolute disaster. They will stumble. They will fall over this rock. And I think in a sense that should both remind us of the danger that people outside of Christ are in. But I think it should also give us some comfort as well. As we live in a society that continually rejects Jesus, continually builds its own world with no reference to him, we can take some comfort from the fact that the Bible tells us that any attempt to build a life, any attempt to build a society without reference to God is, a, is destined to fail. You can't just turf him out with the rubbish. Jesus is this decisive stone. The church is built on him. It's built on Christ, this living stone. This foundation stone, this decisive stone. God's new community is built on Christ. May we never forget the solid, firm foundation upon whom we live. Second thing Peter wants us to understand is that God's new community is built with people. Verse 4, as you come to him the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. We are being built like living stones. See, while those who reject God's chosen cornerstone face disaster, we who have faith in him, who are united to him, are being made like him. Is there anything more astonishing than that? That we are being made like Jesus. And and verse 7, those who trust in him will never be put to shame. Disaster awaits those who reject him. But we have the promise of never being put to shame. Instead of disaster, blessing. The, The face of God smiling upon us. It's not a promise, of course, that we'll never face trial or hardship. In fact, of course, Peter's... First century readers were, were, were very familiar with trials and difficulties and opposition. They were suffering for their faith. This is no promise that they will never face suffering or opposition or ridicule and persecution. But it's a promise that in God's economy, we will never be put to shame. Ultimately, we'll, we will know not shame, but the smile of God. God's new community is being built on Christ with people. People who trust in the finished work of his son on the cross. People who, through faith, are united to Jesus forever. Well, how is it that God is building this community with with people, with us? Verse 4, it's as you come to him. It's as we come to Jesus. Uh, Now, I don't think Peter is talking about the moment we come to Jesus and trust him for salvation. We come to him in that instance, and at that very moment, God joins us to Christ. 
But I think Peter is talking about something else. He's writing to people who have already done that. They're already Christians. They've already come to him once for salvation. We know, don't we, that the Christian life is a lifetime of coming to Jesus. We cannot live without him. We cannot live without actively coming to him time after time, day after day, for, for life and breath and all things. Jesus described himself, of course, as, as the bread of life, living water. We, we cannot survive without eating and drinking, as it were, sustaining ourselves on him. And I think that's what Peter is getting at in verse 4. It's not talking, I don't think, about the time we come to Jesus for salvation, but the ongoing process of coming to Jesus again and again and again throughout the Christian life. And as we thought this morning, he's not talking to you and me as individual Christians either. He's writing to Christians, plural, this passage is describing the church. He's not talking to us as individuals, and he's not even really talking to us as a loose collection of individuals either. He's talking to us, writing to us, as the church. And what Peter is saying, I think, is this. It's as you come to Christ together that God is building you into this new community that is built on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It's as you come to Christ together as you come to Christ together in worship, you are being built together. As you come to him and, and, and sing praises to him together. As you come to him and pray together. As you come to him and listen together. As you come to him and share together. As you come to him and receive together. That is how God is building you into this new community. Jesus is the cornerstone, and we who are related to him, connected to him, come to him, and are being built on him into this new community that God is busy constructing. And it's interesting, again, isn't it, to, to think about this description of living stones, because like Jesus, who was dead, but is raised again to be an eternally living stone, we too were once dead, but have been raised with him. And living stone, as it's a good description of Jesus, is also a good description of the Christian. We once were dead in sin. Spiritually speaking, we were as, as alive as a stone. And yet in Christ we're made new. Alive. He's breathed life into our stone-dead hearts. And therefore we, like him, are living stones. And, and when you're building something... So I'm told, stones are pretty useful. God is the master builder. Building this new community on the, the solid foundation of his son Jesus. And we, like living stones, are, are useful to him as he continues this building work that is growing every day until his son Jesus returns. What mercy that he should choose to use us. Not because we're somehow worthy of being used by the Almighty God. It's all a gift of His grace. But what a great honor it is to be used by God in this glorious building project. But it strikes me that with that great privilege comes great responsibility. We are to follow in the steps of Jesus Himself and be living stones. God is, is building a people. It's not, not of literal bricks and stones. He's building a new people, a new community of people. And we are to be living stones 
stones, living stones, living. I've been to a fair number of churches, and there are some where they've got the stones bit down to a T. They do need a bit of work on the living part. We are to be living stones. That's not the case here, by the way, or at least I don't think so. Um, But it does remind us we need to keep an eye on ourselves. We need to keep an eye on our relationship with the Lord Jesus. Are we alive? Is this a church where the very life of Jesus is running through our veins, evident in all that we are and do? It's a responsibility as living stones to make sure that we don't become dry stones. Stones that are stagnant, immovable and lifeless. We are living stones. But we're also living stones. Get the different emphasis. We're stones. If we have a responsibility to be living, we also have a responsibility to remember that we're stones being built together. Imagine getting up tomorrow morning and, and finding I've been around overnight and removed a few bricks from your front wall of your house. I, I guess um, you'd not be very pleased in the morning. Your house would be fairly unsound. And you know, that's what the church is like when the living stones that God has put together either break themselves apart or, or when they don't live up to their calling. Church is often described in the New Testament as a body, isn't it? Where every, every member has a part to play and, and we rely on one another for, to, to be a complete body. Uh, and the same is true here with this, this image of a building constructed with stones. If we're part of this building, we have a part to play. And if we don't, then there's a problem with the building. And the thing about the church is that the, the sum of, some of its parts, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. On our own, we're just a pile of rubble. But united to Jesus Christ and being built together with with each person playing its part, making its contribution, then the church represents this new community that God is truly building it to be. We are being built together. Built. Not the finished article yet. We are being built. It's been said that every organization has four kinds of bones. Not stones, bones. There's the wishbones, those who wish somebody else would do something about the problems. There's the jaw bones, those who do a lot of talking but not much else. There's the knuckle bones, who knock everything down. And there's the backbones, who carry the brunt of the load and do all the work. Church is not all that different in some ways. There are many wishbones and jawbones. Tragically, there are many knuckle bones who instead of building, knock others down and criticize and complain, they knock the efforts of others. We need churches full of backbones who will build rather than knock. We're being built by God into a new community on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. And that great privilege comes with great responsibility. Uh, And perhaps the the greatest responsibility of all comes in the the third main thing that Peter tells us in verses 4 and 5 about this new community that God is building. God's new community that is built on Christ with people is built for the glory of God. The whole purpose is that God may be honoured as we offer to him spiritual sacrifices. We thought this morning in a bit more detail about what that looked like in in verse 9. 
that, that verse really kind of explains what Peter states in verse 5, that we're a spiritual house, a holy priesthood that serves the living God. We looked at, at the, the identity of the church and those, those characteristics that Peter um, describes us uh, as having this morning. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood that, that, that is to serve God. You're a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Look, remember, once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. Remember who you are. Remember who should get all the glory. And it's as we live out that calling that we looked at in more detail this morning. It's as we, we do that, as we show to the world the glories of the God who's called us from darkness into light. As we do that, God gets all the glory now and for eternity. I had a cousin who used to live in Cyprus, and I remember when I was much younger and we first visited her, she explained how the, the locals, the Cypriots, loved to build new houses, building projects everywhere. Uh, and they loved to build them as close as they could to the main road. You know, we, we, build, we build as far away from the main road, don't we? We like our privacy. They build as close to the main road as they could so that everyone who was passing by could see their house and see how wealthy they were and how great their home was. And it seems to me the church is a bit like that. We want people to see how glorious, how spectacular this house is that God is building, don't we? Why? So that the builder gets the glory. We need to remember that the church is built with us, but not for us. The church is not about our comfort or satisfaction. It's not a vehicle for our pet projects and hobby horses. And the growth of the church is not about saying, oh, aren't we great? Don't our methods work wonderfully? It's all about God's glory as we humbly serve him and worship him. It's the nature of the church. It's something far more wonderful and far more exciting, far more glorious than denominational differences. It's more, far more wonderful than committees and casseroles. The very essence, the very heartbeat of the church is it, it's God's new community. The community he is establishing and building as his sovereign plan for the cosmos for eternity. And therefore it can be nothing short of spectacular. It's a new community that is built on Christ. Built with people. Built for the glory of God. Shall we pray? Lord God, we thank you for the church. We thank you that it is your master plan for the universe. We humbly thank you for the privilege of being part of your church now. We thank you that we who once had never received mercy have now received mercy. We who were once were, were not a people but, but individuals wandering around lost. Thank you that we are now a people. A people whom you are building into something spectacular. We thank you that the church is far more than us. Thank you that the church is far more than a building far more than a collection of people, far more than a denomination. 
We thank you that the church is built on a solid foundation that can never be shaken, can never be moved, can never be destroyed. It's built on the finished work of your glorious Son at the cross. Thank you for the joy and the honour of being the stones with which you are now building this kingdom. May we do everything. May we play our part in building your kingdom here. Not for our glory, but for yours. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now we sing a close.